Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. Uh, Vanessa and I moved to Portland 14 years ago, just this last weekend. Thank you. We came the Monday after uh, President's Weekend, and we moved up here to go to college at, um, at Multnomah, which is on 87th and Gleeson. And I didn't start school till the fall, so we were here all spring and summer. And Vanessa was pregnant with Annalisa, our first daughter. And uh, I worked at Starbucks, and we had a fair amount of time on our hands. And so what we decided to do is we wanted to make sure that we had the route from Multnomah to the hospital down. And the hospital is on 45th and Gleason. It's one road. And we took that road probably 20 to 30 times over the course of the spring to make sure we have it. You're laughing. <laughs> and then we figured, well, we better figure out what, 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 what level on the parking structure we should park at because there's a sky bridge. And we picked our parking spot. And then we thought, well, we better make sure we know the right path through the hospital to get to the right elevators at the right time. So then we walked through the hospital, this big pregnant lady, and everyone thought she was about to have a baby, but she's still months away. We were prepared. Fast forward 14 years to last Saturday, we had a membership interview at our house at three, uh, scheduled for 3 o'clock. And at 2.50, I was driving home, and a calendar alert went off on my phone reminding me of this appointment that was happening in 10 minutes. Uh, And if you were at our house last Saturday at 3 p.m., and you are currently in this room, we did not know you were coming until 10 minutes before you got there. (laughs) We were unprepared. (laughs) So I tell these two stories about being prepared. If chapter 24, which Trevor preached on for two weeks, is about the fact that Jesus is coming back, chapter 25 is the call to be ready. To be prepared. The king is coming back, is the point of Matthew chapter 25. So be ready. So we're going to read this text, and if the word virgins seems odd to you, just think instead bridesmaids, because that's really what's going on. And I'll probably use the word bridesmaids as I, as I preach it to explain it. So would you read with me? Matthew chapter 25, 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask for your help now as we come to your word. Lord, we pray that we would be ready. We pray that we would have ears to hear. And I pray that you'd help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Three points this morning that are up on the screen for you. 
the character, the care and carelessness, and the consequences. And man, you love it as a preacher when you get that alliteration going just like that. (laughs) Point one, the character. So let me set uh, the context of a Jewish marriage and wedding practices that's going on in Jesus's time. They made about as much to do over weddings as we often do in our culture. In fact, their weddings tended to go on for sometimes seven days, and I think you've heard that before. And the custom would have been for the, bride, for the groom on the night of the wedding feast to go to the home of the bride. They would have been betrothed or engaged for a season, a period of time, months, maybe up to a year. But that night, the custom was for him to go to her parents and speak to her parents, and they would grant permission for him to go to the wedding feast. It was a ritual. It was a custom of sorts. And as a sign of honor towards their daughter, these parents would oftentimes traditionally keep the groom waiting. They would keep him waiting. And the groom would come to the house, and he would make these arrangements, and so on and so forth, and people would be outside waiting to go to the party. And the bride's parents honored her for the longer that the the groom was delayed. And finally, when the parents released the bride, they would come out and they would process through the city and they would go to the marriage feast. So that's the context of what's happening here. The context here is that when the bridegroom has now come out with the bride, these people have fallen asleep, but they're supposed to get up now and they're supposed to process down to the actual wedding. And it's nighttime. So they're supposed to have lamps so they can light the way as they make their way down the street to the party. And five of them are ready, and five of them are not. They're all bridesmaids, but five of them are prepared to go to the wedding feast, and five of them are not ready. So let's apply this first point. Two ways. First, I'll say it theologically first. Not every member of a local church is elect. Not every member of a local church is elect. Meaning, there may be some false Christians in this room right now. And that's a weighty thing to hear. That's a weighty doctrine to put on us. That some of us might not actually be converted. We might not actually know Jesus. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this text, said it this way. Of all these bridesmaids, all of them profess to have one object in view, but only five are truly wise, the rest were foolish. The visible church of Christ is in the same condition. All of its members are baptized in his name, but not all actually hear his voice and follow him. All are called Christians, all profess to be of the Christian religion, but not all have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts, and not all are really what they professed to be. It's really important It's vitally important for a church to have church membership. It's vitally important. We don't know the heart. We can only judge what we see. We know that the apostles were quick to baptize in a profession of faith, but they did it because they knew they had the instrument of discipline too. And we see him do it in Acts 8. We see Simon Magnus was quickly baptized, and then he's disciplined soon after. I say sometimes in the membership class, one of the reasons you should join a local church is because we might need to discipline you one day. It's not... That's not a good church growth slogan, by the way. But it's true. We don't know the conditions of our own hearts. 
We don't know, and that means that we need the mechanism of the body of Christ to help us. And that's the first application point. But second, it means that we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Are you trusting in Jesus now? Is Jesus your only hope? Is Jesus your only plea? Because there is a day coming when it will be too late. Turn to him in faith and trust. Repent of your sin. Find and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Because when that day comes, the day of opportunity is past. And that's the moral of the story of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. That when he comes, it is too late then to get prepared. You therefore must get prepared now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of preparation. Today is the day of preparation. And that's the first point. Second point, the care and carelessness. So we're told in verse 5 that all the bridesmaids get, get sleepy. Okay? All the bridesmaids get sleepy. And Matthew's not recording this, I don't think, to condemn them. They say that the groom had delayed for a long time. It doesn't seem like he's pressing any fault to say that they got sleepy. But notice that it's the groom's delay which provides the circumstances to tell whether the bridesmaids are faithful or not. It's the delay to see which ones are prepared and which ones are not prepared, which ones are true, which ones are not true. That is the circumstance in which he comes. And what differentiates the foolish from the wise is precisely the failure of the foolish bridemaids to face the possibility that the bridegroom might come earlier or later than they expect. They don't know when he's going to come. The whole point, what makes them foolish is they think he's either going to come sooner or they think he's going to come later. The wise bridesmaids ready themselves before they hear the announcement. And they take advantage of their day of opportunity. The whole point is that we don't know when Jesus is coming back. John Piper wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And Piper's dad was an evangelist. And in the book, he recalls a story from one of his dad's crusades. He's telling the story of a 76-year-old man who came to faith, but had been previously rejecting and rejecting and rejecting and rejecting his whole life the gospel message. And Piper says this in his book. He says, I wrote this book so that people would not come to the end of their life and say what that old man did sitting in the front pew of my father's evangelistic crusade after he had pled with him to finally receive Christ. He put his hands in his face, and the old man said, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. And Piper goes on, I can remember my dad telling us that story over and over and over, and everything in me and a kid said, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. The old man was thankfully saved, it seems, in the end, but he viewed his life as a waste for having rejected Jesus for so long. You might read this parable and think, why didn't the five that were prepared help out? Seems kind of harsh, right? They had oil, and they're like, no, you go get your own oil. And it's, you know, it's the middle of the night. There's not a 7-Eleven of oils available, oil shops. 
You might think that in the context of a wedding ceremony, there might be a little more cooperation between the bridesmaids. But in this case, I think that's the whole point. They couldn't help them. Because saving grace is not transferable. Preparation is not transferable. There's nothing that the other bridemaids could have done for them. So let me press it to you this way. I can't save you. Your mom can't save you. Your dad can't save you. Your wife can't save you. You can't save your kids. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can save you. There's nothing I can do except stand up here and plead with you to repent and turn to him. I can't do it for you. There's nothing that the five bridesmaids could have done for the foolish ones except plead with them. Plead with them to turn to Jesus now. Prepare now. Saving grace is not transferable, but saving grace is available Turn to him. He's the only one that can save you, and he will save you. His arms are wide. His love is great. Turn to him. Your life is so short. Your life is so short. Your life is a vapor. It's gone in a moment, Jesus tells us. The whole scriptures tell us that. One of my advisors for my doctoral program was a man uh, who owned a CrossFit gym, was in shape. And last month, at 49 years old, he died. Completely unexpected. An elder in his church, a father of children, in shape, healthy, active, dead, 49 years old. Your life is short. Do you think he woke up that morning thinking today's the day? I do know, and we do know what David Toman would say, this man I'm talking about. We know what any human being would say right now if they could speak to us. Do you know how we know? The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in fine purple and linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, like man, are bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and him is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here may not be able to, and none may cross. And then he said, I beg you. To send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, 
If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone even rises from the dead. The, the, the rich man's concern on the other side of the veil was to warn his brothers to repent. He had one desire. Warn my brothers to turn and repent. If David Toman could speak to us now, he would speak with more clarity and acuity than I ever could. And he would tell you to repent and turn to Jesus. One request. Warn my brothers. Turn to Jesus now. And that's point two. We're cruising. Point three, the consequences. So finally, Jesus speaks of the consequences at the end of the parable here from 11 to 13. Let's read it again. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We saw the character of these virgins, these bridesmaids in 1 to 4. We saw their carelessness and their care respectively in 5 to 10. And now you see the consequences of the behavior. Jesus begins to apply the story here. We've now got the story and now Jesus is in 11 to 13. He's going to apply it. He's going to explain it. He's going to tell us the eternal, final consequences of unpreparedness. And we see again that there is an eternal, final consequence for a nominal profession of faith in Jesus. Nominal means just in name only. The consequences from a nominal profession, a name only profession in Jesus is eternal separation from God. If we profess that Jesus Christ is Lord in name only, and if we act like we're Christians in name only, we face eternal separation from God. In the story, in verse 11, they cry out, and they cry out, Lord, Lord, at the master of the house, and he says, I do not know you. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 says that at the end, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, and what's Jesus going to say to them? I never knew you. That word to know is filled with such significance and importance. To say I don't know you means not only I don't recognize you, it means that I don't even acknowledge that you're part of my people. I don't acknowledge that you're part of my family. I don't acknowledge. I don't acknowledge you. I don't acknowledge you. Thankfully, 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us that the Lord knows who are his. He knows who are his. The writer of Hebrews will warn us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. We confess with the Apostles' Creed that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. 
and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is currently reigning. He's putting all of his enemies under his feet. And he will come again when no one expects it to judge the world in righteousness. And those that are found in him, it says that, they will, that they're anxiously awaiting his appearing, will go off to, with him in eternity in the joy of their master, will sit at that marriage feast and experience a kind of joy and blissfulness that we've never even possibly imagined. And to those that don't know him, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Perfect righteousness with a sharp axe of punishment against all sin. So how do we know? How can we be ready? Let me just try to apply it a few ways as we come to a close here. How do we know? How do we know? Is your greatest hope, is your greatest joy, is your greatest delight in Jesus and Jesus alone? Is the thought of your sin being removed, the wrath of God assuaged, right standing with God, is that your final hope? It can be. It's available to you as such. That endless joy, endless satisfaction, right standing with God, communion with God, is it what's most important and significant to you? That's how you know. One of my favorite places to read when I'm feeling despondent, and I was feeling despondent this week, so I read it, is at the end of Psalm 5, and as Psalm 5 goes into Psalm 6, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a favor as a shield. Psalm 6 now. Keep reading. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. I am weary in my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Psalm 511 held up to Psalm 6-7. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. And then I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. I love that. I know that sounds kind of weird. But I love that. I love the reality of the human condition and the honesty of the Bible. The honesty of the psalmist. He's saying 
that even in the midst of fearing, of feeling weary and weak and languishing and attacked by his enemies, he's saying, but I rejoice. I rejoice that you're my refuge. I rejoice that you shield me, that you're my covering, that you're my protection, that you spread your wings over me. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the mantra of the Bible. Sorrowful, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Our, 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 our outer man is wasting away, it's weak, it's dying, but our inner man is being renewed, it's being strengthened because it's finding its hope, its delight, its joy in Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you know that testimony of sorrowful yet always rejoicing? That's, that, 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 that testimony of rejoicing and yet languishing, that's the, that's the reality of life on this side of eternity. And that's what a Christian is. That's what it means to find your hope in him. That even in the midst of all of life's circumstances, in the midst of all of life's struggles, all of life's pains, letdowns, setbacks, sicknesses, broken relationships, there is a seed of joy that can't be taken from you. It might sometimes only be a seed. Sometimes what we're doing when we're singing, we might be saying, it might be a prayer, God, make this real to me again. It was real to me at one point. I felt it one time. I felt it last year. I felt it last month. I felt it however long ago. I need to feel it again. I need to sense your presence, your love, your joy, your forgiveness again. Sometimes that's what we're doing. And that's okay. That's sorrowful and always rejoicing. Continuing to put one foot in front of the other. Find your joy and delight in God. Because Jesus at this point is not just a king, he's a betrothed king. He's an engaged king and he will soon be a married king. We are a betrothed bride. His betrothed bride is the people of God, the people who trust in him. And King Jesus came into the world to take a wife, not a harem. He came in the world to take a wife, and not for sex, but to give her pleasures that make sex seem like rubbing your face on sandpaper. He paid for his bride with his life, and now he's at work in us by his spirit He's purifying us. He's beautifying us for himself and for our joy. One last thought. On Friday night, Vanessa was at the ballet with the girls. And so I was sitting there, 9.30, put the other kids to bed, thinking about this sermon, thinking about this text. And I remembered a gift that my sister-in-law, Michelle, gave to me years ago. And this gift is something that she, I don't know, needlepoint? Is that what it's called? What's it? Embroidery. Crochet, sew, needlepoint, salt. <laughs> potato, potato. And I, I, I couldn't remember where it was since, since we moved last year. And I went down into my study downstairs, and I found it under a, a, a pile of books. That's how much I value your gifts, Michelle. <laughs> and I got it out, and I wiped it off, and I put it right on our piano, and I determined it's always going to sit right there. 
You know what it says? One life to live will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Your life's a vapor. Prepare yourself now. Find your joy and your delight in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because then when he comes, you'll have just only had a foretaste. And you'll experience the fullness of what you've been longing for your whole entire life. Would you pray with me?